Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present investigative reporter and author Greg Palast, who explains how Trump and the Republican Party are planning to use the Constitution's 12th Amendment to steal the 2024 presidential election. Amanda Crawford, assistant professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut, who examines why Republicans in the American right have so fully embraced toxic conspiracy theories, demonizing their perceived enemies. And Ellen Yard, an epidemiologist with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who explores the possible links between the coronavirus pandemic and a dramatic rise in suicide attempts by adolescent girls. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. As Germany is winding down its decade-long plan to phase out nuclear power, the European Commission, which is the executive arm of the European Union, proposed rules allowing nuclear power and natural gas to be used as transitional fuels toward what they call a clean energy future. Germany and its anti-nuclear allies in the EU attacked the plan and accused the EU Commission of trying to bury the proposals from the news cycle by releasing it on New Year's Eve. France and other pro-nuclear states, such as the Czech Republic and Hungary, support the inclusion of nuclear energy, while many governments in Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe lobbied for natural gas to be included as a bridge fuel. France, which relies heavily on nuclear power, maintains that the EU could not reach its goal of carbon neutrality by 2050 without nuclear energy. However, the plans have attracted protests from Greta Thunberg and other young climate activists who say this fake climate action contradicts the EU's goal of net zero emissions by 2050. Throughout the pandemic, Amazon has rapidly expanded its delivery network with the aid of taxpayer subsidies. The company has built 171 facilities in so-called opportunity zones across the U.S., created by the former Trump administration. In these zones, Amazon and other high-end investors can qualify for capital gains tax benefits. Although the program was created to benefit low-income communities, critics say these funded projects likely would have gone forward without government subsidies, and it's impossible to measure if the program has actually created jobs and affordable housing. Good Jobs First, a policy resource center, estimates that Amazon has received $650 million in Opportunity Zone subsidies in 2021 and $4.2 billion in other benefits through property tax abatements, corporate income tax credits, and even sales tax exemptions on building materials. The Washington Post observed that Amazon is under increased public scrutiny since the e-commerce giant paid no income tax in 2018 on $11.2 billion in profits. During the 2020 presidential campaign, Democrats, including Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and then-candidate Joe Biden, repeatedly criticized Amazon for not paying its fair share of taxes. 
When Americans cast ballots in the 2022 midterm election, many of the most important races won't be for office in Washington. Some statewide contests will have the most profound consequences for the future of free and fair elections in America. The races for governor and secretary of state, the chief election official in many places, will determine which officials have control over setting election rules and the post-election certification process. Trump-backed stop-the-steal candidates in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania could gain control over election administration offices in the run-up to the 2024 presidential election. In these swing states, Democratic governors have vetoed Republican attempts to roll back voting rights and efforts to block expanded mail-in voting. These measures could be reversed if extremist GOP candidates win in November. Among the Republican candidates for Michigan's Secretary of State is Trump-endorsed Christina Caramo, who insists Antifa, not Trump supporters, were responsible for the deadly January 6th insurrection and coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In the days between the November 3, 2020 presidential election and January 6, the day Congress was scheduled to certify Joe Biden as winner and next occupant of the White House, Donald Trump and his inner circle were working to subvert the will of the American people. The plot that preceded the pro-Trump violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6 involved conservative lawyer and Trump advisor John Eastman, who argued that the Constitution's 12th Amendment gave then-Vice President Mike Pence the discretion to decide which state's electoral vote should be counted if there was a dispute, because GOP legislators had already been primed to make baseless allegations that widespread voter fraud had tainted the election. The plot would have several key states submit competing slates of electors, thereby throwing the election result into dispute. The Twelfth Amendment dictates that if no candidate achieves the necessary majority, the matter goes to the House of Representatives to be decided, where each state is given one vote. On January 6, 2021, the Republicans controlled 26 state delegations, just enough to overturn the will of the people and award the election victory to Trump. Your reporter spoke with best-selling author and investigative journalist Greg Palast, who's been reporting on voter suppression issues for 22 years. In his recent article titled, what do you call a failed insurrection? Practice. He explains how the same elements in the unsuccessful plot to steal the election in 2020 will likely be executed again by Trump and the GOP in the 2024 election. Palast warns that unless we can preserve democracy in this year's 2022 midterm elections, Trump and the Republicans could very well succeed. Yeah, the 12th Amendment, one of the horror shows of our Constitution. If you think the Electoral College is unfair and a bad idea, that ain't nothing compared to the 12th Amendment. What the 12th Amendment says is that if, there, if no one gets enough electoral votes, that is, in our case, if no one gets 270 electoral votes unchallenged, then the choice of president switches to the House of Representatives. 
And it's not one Congress person, one vote, which reflects the population of the U.S. It would be one state, one vote. So California, New York, Connecticut, each get one vote. So does Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota. And D.C. won't get any vote. At the moment, there's a Republican majority of 27 states, in which case the Republican, presumably Donald Trump, would win. How does this happen? First of all, it has happened. 1824, right at, literally right after that amendment was added to the Constitution, uh, John Quincy Adams, who lost the popular vote and the electoral vote to Andrew Jackson, was named president under the 12th Amendment by a vote of the states. Jackson so overwhelmed him in the four years later that he became president. But it's happened. When I first brought up that Trump could steal the election by the 12th Amendment, um, I was roundly criticized as a conspiracy nut, that, that even Trump would not do that. Oh, Greg Palace has finally gone off the edge. But now we have, from CNN and from uh, Washington Post, they found the memo by John Eastman, Trump's lawyer, which Trump then gave to Pence on January 4th of last year, saying, here's how we use the 12th Amendment to stay in power. So I had it on the nose. Now, obviously, I didn't know about the memo. I didn't know about the secret meeting between Trump and Pence and several of Trump's staffers, including Mark Meadows. They were all in on this attempt to use the 12th, but they had not prepared the ground for it. So there were several senators and several congresspeople who would not challenge the certification of the votes of any of the states. But this time they are laying the groundwork by saying, people like Cruz and others, Democrats are stealing the vote through fraudulent voters, illegal immigrants, double voters, you know, dead voters. By the way, it's always interesting that the double voters always happen to be a certain color. They never talk about white double voters. It's only black double voters and Hispanic double voters. But they assume that there's millions of these. They've never been able to prove that there's one. I'm not talking about a million. I'm not gonna, even talking about a thousand. I'm talking about let's try one. But they're going to use that to not certify the electoral vote from various states. And in addition, I know it gets a little complicated here, but these guys are sharp. Then you should read the Eastman memo, which is also linked at gregpalace.com, because under the second article of the Constitution, not the Second Amendment, not about the gun stuff, I'm talking about the second article of the Constitution, says that state legislatures, not voters, let me repeat this, state legislatures choose the president through the Electoral College. State legislators choose the Electoral College members. And if a state has a rule that says, listen to the voters, that has nothing to do with the U.S. Constitution, in which there is no right to vote anywhere in the United States Constitution, period, except for the right to vote for a U.S. senator. That's your only right to vote is for the U.S. Senate. Well, Greg, given what you've laid out here and what we know occurred and may occur again, what is our best protection as a democracy against these schemes that would steal another election in 2024? I'll say it many times, and I'll, you'll hear from me in future broadcasts. They can't steal all the votes all the time. I tell this to people because when you hear Greg Palace talk about vote suppression, they say, oh, why vote? They're going to steal it. No, 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 no. They can't steal all the votes all the time. What happened in Georgia in January that the voters simply overwhelmed the steal. When their Secretary of State told Trump in that recorded call, I can't find you 12,000 more votes, 
Don't think that that guy, Secretary of State Raffensperger, was a great hero. He wasn't. He found him 100,000 votes already. He already stole 100,000 votes from people. He just couldn't find any more without going to prison. So, you know, they did every trick you could imagine. But people simply went out and voted and overwhelmed it. So overwhelm the steal. Don't steal your own vote. And then if, if the popular will prevails in 2022, they won't have the, the votes in Congress. They won't have the popular support that they will need to pull off that stunt in 2024. So now is when you act. Protect your vote and be alert. That was investigative reporter Greg Palast, best-selling author of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Find a link to Greg's latest reports by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It often appears that Americans, divided by politics and endless culture wars, live in totally different realities. Many Republicans and those on the right believe that both climate change and the coronavirus pandemic are an elaborate hoax. Large numbers of Trump voters reject COVID vaccines, wearing masks, and social distancing. Thousands of QAnon cult members believe Satan-worshipping Democrats eat children and that the deceased JFK Jr. will rise from the dead and run as vice president with Donald Trump in 2024. Recent polls find that more than 70% of Republicans say they don't believe Joe Biden was legitimately elected to the White House, echoing former President Trump's big lie that he was the actual winner of the 2020 election. More worrisome is that even after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and a failed pro-Trump coup attempt, up to 40% of Republicans told pollsters that they believe the use of violence may be necessary to achieve their political goals. Your reporter spoke with Amanda Crawford, assistant professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut, who's worked as a reporter for a number of major national news outlets. Here, Professor Crawford examines the reasons why so many Republicans and those on the American right have so fully embraced toxic and often bizarre conspiracy theories that demonize their perceived enemies. I do not think the right holds any kind of claim to being the only place that conspiracy theories live. And, and certainly those on the left are also susceptible to conspiratorial thinking. But what we see on the right particularly is that for decades, leaders of the Republican Party and, you know, more right-wing ideologies have, seek, have really sought to discredit the institutions that verify truth. So there's been an attack on the media for decades. You know, it, we definitely can say it goes back, you know, further. But, you know, certainly you can look from the Reagan administration onward, the birth of talk radio, um, the birth of Fox News. We've seen a, a, a systematic effort on the right to discredit journalists, to discredit them, to, to malign them, to say they're not trustworthy and you can't believe anything they're saying. Similarly, we've seen that with academia. You see the right-wing attacks on academics and professors as being liberal and indoctrinating people in liberal ideologies. So once you discredit those institutions um, that are there to verify truth, then there's no one to be on the other pole, right, to say, believe this person, they're trustworthy. Um, we've seen it with climate change, the discrediting of science, right, for decades. 
um, don't believe what the scientists say. They're not telling the truth. It's all a conspiracy. It's all a lie, right? And that kind of discrediting of media, academia, scientists, that has ramifications. Um, and so after you pump that for so long, people don't trust journalists. So when journalists say there's a mass shooting, they don't believe them. They don't trust scientists. So when scientists say there's a pandemic, they don't believe them. And there's been for a long time, obviously, a distrust of government on the right as well, which is you know, certainly linked to the idea of smaller government, right? And, and believing that the only good government you can drown in a bathtub or whatever the saying is, right? So if you have this kind of of institutional discrediting of all the people who are fighting for truth. Really, you've primed people to accept conspiracy theories and to accept misinformation. Mm. And then when we get into the psychological reasons, and you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a, or a psychologist studying this in that way, um, or a behavioral scientist, um, I'm a journalist. But you know, when you look at the studies by people who are studying human psychology, there are various reasons we fall into these traps. And some of them are that you're trying to deal with a chaotic world and conspiracy theories, these kind of convenient narratives, um, while they seem ludicrous, they can explain away things you don't want to think about. You know, when you're talking about mass shootings, it, it may be easier for someone who um, believes in gun rights to just say there's no problem. I don't have to deal with uh, thinking about an assault weapons ban. Because it's not because there's no real tragedy, right? There's no emergency, um, and so we call that motivated reasoning, where it's really linked to you know your political beliefs. Some of the most dire predictions about our current conflict and uh, divergence of views about what the real world is in our country have led some to speculate, and there's been polling data about uh, concern about a new civil war in this country. You know, armed conflict in the street. And we've certainly seen a rise of political violence that you can't deny. But how concerned are you that we may be approaching some kind of dramatic shift of what we, you know, have come to expect from our politics and uh, make a, a really dark departure to an earlier time when Americans were shooting at each other and killing each other? Well, I think a lot of that conversation, the the nuance comes into what are we talking about when we talk about civil war? Are we going to talk about are we talking about, you know, lines of soldiers shooting at each other and, you know, and uniforms of blue and gray or a, a geographical, you know, secession from the nation? That doesn't seem as likely to me from what I've read. Um, but if we think that that. And um, we think in more modern terms of what that could look like, we could be looking at more incidents of domestic upheaval like the insurrection, like the attack on the Michigan Capitol, right, and the threats against the governor there. And so I think from the polls that I've seen and the research that I've done that those kinds of incidences of domestic terrorism connected to political ideology and to misinformation, that seems likely to me. I think the key when we're talking about all these things is what our leaders do. A lot of it is that we have leaders in the Republican Party who are unwilling to distance themselves from the most extreme ideas. And so that'll be our challenge going forward. Can we establish some kind of leadership to tamp this down? Or does the most extreme fringe um, you know, these polls are showing maybe 25, 30 percent of Americans who have that 
you know, more belief in some kind of insurrection or rebellion or uprising? Um, are they going to get the political support um, from national party leaders? Are they going to be relegated to being domestic terrorists? But I think that threat, that whether you consider that civil war or not, I mean, it may have already arrived. That was Amanda Crawford, assistant professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut. Find links to Professor Crawford's recent articles and related information by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 2019, suicide was the second leading cause of death among youth and young adults in the U.S., ages 10 to 34. 634 children, aged 10 to 14, killed themselves, while almost 10 times that number of 15 to 24-year-olds committed suicide. However, most suicide attempts don't result in death. A recent study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention looked at hospital emergency department admissions for suspected suicide attempts and found a staggering 51% increase among girls aged 12 to 17 between March of 2019 and March of 2021. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Ellen Yard, an epidemiologist with a suicide prevention team with the Injury Center at the CDC and lead author of the study. Here she explains that the focus of the study was not the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on suicide attempts, but rather the data and its possible significance. Our study was really just looking at uh, the number of people presenting to the emergency department. And, you know, we weren't interviewing them to find out exactly why they had presented. Some researchers have suggested that the COVID-19 pandemic could be having a negative effect on mental health. You know, we do know that COVID-19 has obviously been causing disruptions to daily life. It causes sort of general anxiety about illness, can cause social isolation and kind of changes in peer interactions. You know, youth have been especially impacted by some of these mitigation measures with decreased connectedness to schools or teachers or peers. Uh, We've also seen that in general during health emergencies, you tend to see more anxiety and depression and substance use and, you know, suicidal thoughts and behaviors can tend to increase. Uh, The pandemic could have caused, you know, barriers to mental health treatment. It could have caused, you know, family health and economic problems. You know, all of these can be stressors that could possibly increase one's uh, likelihood to uh, make a suicide attempt. It's, it's also possible, though, like another theory is that, you know, with families spending more time at home together, it's possible that parents and adults may have become a little more aware of behaviors related to suicide attempts and so may have been more likely to recognize it and then take their child to the ED. So that would have been a a positive outcome. So in this period, I read that successful suicides, if we can call them that, actually declined. And is that all suicides or just suicides among teen girls? 
So maybe the increase in attempts was more a cry for help? So we are starting, CDC is starting to look at mortality data from 2020. And it appears that suicide as a whole decreased from 2019 to 2020. And that's looking at all persons. The, the early data are showing that. But specifically looking at the age group that was in our study for these adolescents and young adults, we did not see any change in uh, suicides. So deaths by suicide from 2019 to 2020. I mean, that is kind of a, a positive thing there showing that mental distress may have been increasing a bit. And, you know, but fortunately, because people are, are presenting to the ED and getting treatment and getting care, you know, most persons that attempt suicide do not go on to die by suicide. And this is kind of a showing the benefit of presenting to the ER and, and getting treatment for that. But Dr. Ellen Yard, it remains that the numbers skyrocketed for girls 12 to 17 and not for boys. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic started, we had been seeing higher rates of suicide attempts among adolescent females compared to adolescent males. And we had been seeing even more concerningly, in addition to having higher rates of ED visits for suicide attempts, they were also increasing at a higher rate. So, you know, we're not sure whether the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated this trend even more, or if these increases would have happened even in the absence of COVID-19 but, you know, I mean, really the, just the, the fact that, you know, we found that young females are, you know, really kind of experiencing more severe distress. And we think it just underscores the need for kind of increased attention to suicide prevention overall, and then particularly for this population. Your study didn't mention the negative impact of social media specifically on preteen and teen girls. Do you think that's a big issue? We know that, you know, social media, uh, some previous research has found that increased use of social media can cause adverse mental health outcomes. It can cause loneliness, mental distress, could cause suicidality, you know, I mean, because using social media, it can result in kind of making these social comparisons. Uh, you can have negative interactions with other users. There can be cyberbullying. You know, social media can also sometimes normalize or promote self-harm behavior, which we, you know, is, we absolutely don't want. But on the other hand, we also find that social media can provide a venue for positive social interactions and connection, especially during times when, you know, in-person gatherings are, uh, are not possible or, or are, you know, harder. So, you know, there's really two sides of the coin there. That was Ellen Yard an epidemiologist with a suicide prevention team at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Learn more about the CDC study on youth suicide by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You 
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, KMUD in Garberville, California, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.